for V for Various Podcast. A vault and voice of various verbal voyages with me, Tim Previtt, here at redshiftonline.org. Hello and welcome to the V for Various Podcast. My name is Tim Previtt and I have had the joy of being with Redshift Online Redshift Radio as it was, since the summer of 2012. In the intervening eight years, I have had the joy of interviewing a variety of different guests across a whole spectrum of different subjects. This first season of V for Various is going to be made up of shows from that time which were used on Redshift Radio and edited for Redshift Online's podcasts. So, Obviously, any dates that you hear to forthcoming events, releases, etc. no longer apply, but the content is still very, very relevant. Now, I've had to change the name of my podcast from what was something different on Redshift Radio to V for Various. And that is because somebody's already got a something different podcast, which is quite vexing, but never mind. Enjoy this first season of formerly something different shows on my new V for Various podcast. Please subscribe and if you want to get in touch to feature on a future show, you can email me Tim Prevett, that's P-R-E-V-E-T-T at gmail.com. You can also find me on all the usual social media channels. Thank you for listening and remember, please subscribe. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this first episode of V for Various. This season consisting of formerly something different shows. This first episode is a special about werewolves. Do check out the episode description for links. And as you'll be able to tell, I had enormous fun recording and preparing this as a Halloween special. By the power of local community radio... I invoke the spirits of Coronatwich past to come forth upon this hallowed evening of Halloween and populate this next two hours with the spirits of Coronatwich past. Come forth. Come forth. Come forth! It's Halloween! Happy Halloween! Hello! It's an oddity! And I'm very pleased to welcome back onto the show, albeit in a pre-recorded interview, Hannah Kate of Hick Dragones. So I run a small press uh, based in North Manchester called Hick Dragones. Um, I'm an editor and events organiser, so we run um, conferences and literature events um, in and around Manchester. Um, the interest in werewolves comes from our first collection of short fiction, which was a collection of short stories um, all about female werewolves and that book's called Wolf Girls. Um, In my other life, because I think like all good monsters, you have to have more than one identity, um, I'm 
Dr. Hannah Priest, and I'm an academic who also works on popular fiction, werewolves, vampires, fairies, and um, other monstrous things. There's a few things about werewolves I think that are interesting. The most obvious one being this idea that we all have the animal within us and that at any given point we can drop our uh, pretense of humanity and just run in the woods howling at the moon. I think that appeals to a lot of people. Female werewolves are a particular interest of mine and they have a long history, maybe not as long as male werewolves, but it is a little bit different too. And like a lot of women, I think I find something quite attractive in the female werewolf, particularly in the way that she rejects domesticity, she rejects being a nice girl, she rejects settling down and making a home for being something a little bit wilder and a little bit... um, less controlled i think pronunciation i've already noticed but i said i've said werewolf you said werewolf is there a proper way one ought to pronounce there's not um it does seem to be split fairly 50 50 for a long time the etymology of the world word werewolf was fairly well accepted that um it comes from weir the old english word for man and wolf meaning wolf um some people have have started to question this recently for quite um, technical linguistic reasons that I won't bore your listeners with. Um, the, the where at the beginning of werewolf doesn't fit as properly as you think it would if you know anything about um, old English word construction. So an alternative is that it comes from uh, the Norse word var, meaning a wolf that kills for sport, which would make it wolf-wolf, but um, it is an alternative meaning. So until we know where the word comes from, I don't really think we can pin the um, pronunciation down particularly. I'm fairly easygoing. I'm happy with werewolf or werewolf. We have quite a bombardment of werewolf in recent media and literature. I take it it's not just a fairly recent phenomenon, but it stretches some way back, I reckon. Yeah, well, werewolves in literature stretch back to um, probably the first one was in Petronius's Satyricon, so we're going right back to ancient Greek text. First female werewolf doesn't really appear till the Middle Ages, but um, we've got this long history of um, werewolves in fiction. What's interesting is that they they haven't changed to something unrecognisable. So if you if you read an ancient Greek werewolf or a medieval werewolf, you can see that this is the ancestor of George from being human or the American werewolf in London. What we do seem to find, though, is that you have certain peak periods of werewolf fiction. So you have these golden ages of werewolf fiction. So after a little flurry of texts in um, classical Greek, the next time you get a real kind of group of, of werewolf texts and a real surge in popularity is in the late Middle Ages, uh, from in the 12th century in France and the 14th century in England, when suddenly everyone wants to write werewolf fiction. And it doesn't happen again till the Victorian period. And I think we're going through one now because werewolves do seem to be everywhere at the moment. What kind of things could be making people think that there are people that somehow transform into a half-person, half-beast? Well, this is a question that people do debate a lot, and there there are many different answers. Um, The proximity of humans and wolves is something that comes up a lot, particularly in countries like Britain, um, where we've 
hunted wolves to extinction. So the, the idea of a folk memory of a closer relationship to wolves lingers on in the centuries after the death of the last wolf. But I think if we look at um, what kind of mundane, ordinary things are going on at the time when we get these peak periods of werewolf literature, a slightly different story emerges. If we look at the medieval werewolf legends, they appear at a time of, by medieval standards, quite intense urbanisation and deforestation. So at the same time as the wolves are being hunted, the great forests are being destroyed. And with urbanisation came another problem in the, the High Middle Ages, which has been documented by a couple of um, historians of science. With urbanisation and deforestation, the wolves were pushed closer to the towns and the proximity with dogs led to a rise in lupine rabies. So if you were living in a 14th century town and the forests have been destroyed in the romantic um, settings and wolves are just a folk memory or something in literature, and the only wolves you do see are sort of rabid scavengers that have been driven in from the countryside, I think you'd be forgiven for perhaps writing a werewolf story or two. Um, so that's one of the that's one of the historical factors that might have fed this fascination that we have in Europe for for werewolf literature. In the past year or so, we've had a rash. I say rash. I think about six accounts of foxes in an urbanised environment coming into human dwelling, and then in the popular press, they've been somewhat demonised and calls for colds. I was looking in Private Eye magazine last week, and I think in the past ten years, there have been six reports of foxes entering premises and um, assaulting people and calls for calls as a result. Each year there's something like 6,000 dog attacks on children, but there's no calls for a cull on dogs. So there's something about this creature that's on the fringes of society but dares to come into our um, urbanised environment and, and sort of it's looking for food, it's hungry, it's trying to survive alongside us. And um, what do you think about that? No, absolutely. I think... Um quite often when we look at the demonised animal, whether it was the the wolf of the Middle Ages or the fox of the 21st century, it is a response to an animal trying to adapt to urbanisation. What we've seen with the fox is that they're really good at it, and so perhaps we're demonising them even more because we're terrified that foxes just don't seem to be phased by urbanisation. I can't say I can't speak for the medieval wolf and how well they coped with urbanisation and the extinction of them suggests that they didn't cope particularly well. But that we do, we demonise these animals that are, are responding to something that we've done. But I think what werewolf fiction tells us is that we also romanticise them and we do, we demonise foxes, we call for calls, but we still take being called foxy as a compliment that... We, it is a it's a it's a double edged sword of of demonization and romanticization and and you see this with werewolves all the time terrifying scary dangerous threatening but still somehow something we identify with something that we romanticize yeah. in the twilight films something that we objectify and <laughs> fantasize about perhaps which of course raises all sorts of issues but um 
werewolves are, are terrifying and threatening but they're also sexy and i think um like you say the the current the current fear of foxes probably is very much connected to these processes well, i'd love to say i was um getting paid an awful lot for what i do but um i think job satisfaction sometimes trumps big paychecks but the first book that you mentioned is a collection of short stories called Wolf Girls um, which I edited so we have writers in that book from from Britain but also from the States, from Canada, from Australia as well and each writer was asked to take the female werewolf as the central focus of their story. I didn't offer them any definition of female or any definition of werewolf, I just that was the, the starting point and each writer went in a completely different direction direction with it so the story is about mental illness the story is based in folklore based in northern folklore as well which is is nice to see because i think northern europe northern european folklore can sometimes be ignored um but each one has at its center a a female a female character who has some lycanthropic traits so that that was the first book that you mentioned the second one is with my academic hat on. I'm currently working on a cultural history of female werewolves for Manchester University Press. So this will look much more at both the history, but also the ways that we can interpret this um, th this figure, uh, drawing parallels with the history of male werewolves, but also pointing out that female werewolves have their own independent history too. Um, so the book will go from essentially looking at, at figures like Grendel's mother in Beowulf that we could call maybe a a proto-female werewolf. She's associated with wolves and she's monstrous but isn't actually a werewolf. Going right through to Nina from Being Human or um, Kitty Norville from the Carrie Vaughan's novels um, and also to, to the way that werewolves are gendered as male or female in role-playing games, uh, World of Warcraft or uh, the White Wolf games as well. Um, and the last publication that you mentioned is actually, it's actually a book chapter for another academic book. I was asked to contribute to a book on vampires by a, a, a colleague who um, is a, a huge vampire fan and um, he asked me if I would write something about uh, werewolves and vampires and the brief he gave me was werewolves are always vampires familiars or pets or something write something about that and I was really busy at the time so I was going to say no but I was so outraged that someone would say that werewolves were vampires familiars that I said no I'm going to write about werewolves that are vampire hunters and so I've written um, about it's an academic article analysing the way that figures like for instance um, the Quilutes in Twilight or McNair in um, the third series of Being Human, who a character I absolutely loved, and Lucian in the Underworld films. What happens when a werewolf hunts vampires and what happens when the, the two species are put in opposition to each other? And so that's, a, that's my latest thing that I've just finished. Now, Hannah last year organised an academic conference, a monsters conference, uh, all, about, all about monsters, as the name would suggest. And this year is doing something a bit different, but on a similar vein. Um, tell us about last year's and, and what you're going to be doing that's different this year, please, Hannah. So last year's conference was a two-day academic conference on monsters um, in its broadest interpretations. And we had scholars from all around Europe, 
Australia, the States, Canada, um, coming to each each person came to give a, a presentation on a different aspect of monsters, and we had everything from um, monstrous architecture to Lady Gaga to um, Vikings in romance novels to vampires in Victorian fiction and the full range of, of what we mean when we say monsters and monstrosity. Um, the conference was very successful and we had some absolutely amazing speakers. And so this year we decided to, to replicate the format but to look at a different aspect of these, these other creatures. And the topic that we've chosen for this year is cannibals, which has raised a few eyebrows um, and has is normally followed by the question, really, why? Um, but it seemed like it seemed like a, a good time to to look at this subject. There's been a number of horror films recently that have uh, engaged directly with cannibals. It's a very prevalent theme in fiction and has been since the beginning of fiction. So um, it seemed like a good idea to look at it. We've just put the programme together. And again, we have papers from looking at um, early Christian theology through to early modern drama, 18th century philosophy, contemporary horror films. We have a paper from a criminal psychologist on um, serial killers. We have um, anthropologists coming, and we do have a paper on South Park as well. It's actually my paper, and I'm going to uh, look at the South Park episode, Scott Tenement is Dead, and um, Eric Cartman, and why that makes us laugh. Okay, so these academic conferences are organised under the auspices of your uh, company, Hick Dragones, which does publishing as well. Um, tell us a bit more about what Hick Dragones gets up to and where people can find out more what you're doing in a professional capacity with your company. So Hick Dragones is, um, I, I guess, technically a micro press in that there's two people who work for Hick Dragones. And we publish um, weird fiction and organise academic conferences and literature events. So the Cannibals and the Monsters Conference are um, that side of things. Um on the pub, under the publishing side of things, we are we've just released our first novel um, by a novelist from Whitefield in Bury, um, and we'll be releasing a, another anthology of short stories in July. And we're very pleased to have two um, fantastic British horror writers contributing to that: Ramsay Campbell and Simon Bestwick. So, um, really looking forward to releasing that anthology in, later in the year. And what is Hick? Dragonies. It's a phrase that allegedly used to be put on the edges of maps, so those those weird areas that hadn't been explored. And it's a Latin phrase that means "here be dragons" or "here be monsters." Um, the extent to which it actually ever appeared on a map is debatable, but that doesn't really matter for our purposes. Um, and so I chose it for the company because it seemed to sum up um, some of our some of our interests quite well okay hannah so what werewolf media do you enjoy the most well, i've got to say i was a huge fan of being human but i was very much team george and team nina and so after series three i um my heart wasn't quite in it i think the werewolves and being human have consistently been fantastic as well as george and nina one of my favorite characters was mcnair from series three i thought he was a 
a wonderfully grizzled, embattled, but still well-rounded character. And although I did um, lose a bit of interest after series three, I've got to admit, I really did like Alison, uh, the the second female werewolf that they introduced as a in an episode with with Tom. Um, I thought it was quite nice to have a geeky female werewolf. They're they're quite rare. Female werewolves are normally quite sexualized and feisty and in your face. It was quite nice to have one whose glasses kept falling off her nose and who was a shy and awkward. I don't know whether that says more about who I identify with, but I, I thought being human. Being humans, werewolves have always held a little bit more interest for me than their vampires. Um, in terms of other media, there have been some fantastic werewolf films. And I think for anyone with an interest in female werewolves, the, probably the most popular film would be Ginger Snaps. Um, that came out in 2000, Canadian independent film about a girl whose first period coincides with being bitten by something um, that isn't human. But I think personally, I prefer the second Ginger Snaps film. It's not as well known and it focuses on Ginger's younger sister, Bridget. Um, and it deals with a completely different side of lycanthropy to the first film. So together as a pair, they are a fantastic a fantastic couple of films. I could list the, the many great films with male werewolves in them. Um, probably a favourite would have to be American Werewolf in London. Um, there are fewer films with female werewolves, and um, that's a shame, but uh, the ones that have come out recently, like Ginger Snaps, um, really are quite good. A film that influenced me very much as, as a child, um, I've got brothers older than me, so when I was eight, I had a brother 16 years old, and I was able to see The Howling when I was about eight or nine, which has left me with quite a phobia of, of werewolves, as much as I enjoy them and I can rationalise them as an adult. So just the other night on Being Human, there was a sustained sequence of a werewolf going through a hotel and the vampire and other werewolf trying their best to cope with the threat of this werewolf because if the werewolf gave into its instincts, like all mayhem would have, would have been let loose. So anyway, the, the Howling. I've recently rewatched The Howling. Elizabeth Brooks's character... Um, you mentioned touched on sexuality. Is there an aspect maybe of sort of sexual liberation for female werewolves instead of sort of being the submissive? Yeah, there is. It's it's a complicated little area though because this seems to be something that's been part of the female werewolf almost since its inception. The idea that well, she's the man eater, literally <laughs> in some cases. Um, what happens in, in a lot of contemporary fiction, film and television is that this becomes a problem in itself. And so you have things like um, Blood and Chocolate, which was a, a novel and, and then a film for young adults where the, the central character, Vivian, is this aggressive, sexual, gets what she wants, uh, doesn't allow a man to be on top, which is absolutely fine when she's with other werewolves. When she meets a human boy, he makes her feel disgusted by it. Um, so a lot of werewolf texts will take this as a starting point and then muddy the waters and, and make you think a little bit more about the implications of it. Some texts, though, do still, like the Howlings tr certainly does, um, do keep this sense of liberation to it as well so that you get the the same idea being presented from two different points of view depending on which text that you look at. Sometimes... Um, the female werewolves 
sexual identity is liberating and exciting and something that you know breaks free of domesticity and um breaks free of the patriarchy and um is a great thing on the other hand you get just as many texts saying that um her sexual nature is part of why she's so monstrous so it's a, it, again we've got this the, the two different ways of looking at the same thing Hannah, tell us about what really interests you particularly in the world of werewolf fiction. Well, there's an awful lot to choose from. Um, there's a, obviously a much longer history than with film. My f- interest in werewolves actually came from studying medieval literature, medieval romance. And two of my favourite werewolf texts do come from this period. There's the 12th century Bisclavray by Marie de France, which is a short narrative poem um, about a man who for no particular reason, turns into a werewolf every night. It's, we're told this as if this is just a normal thing that men do. They run off to the woods and, and run as werewolves. And his wife becomes quite um, concerned about this, so she hides his clothes so he can't become human again. And the, the rest of the story is about the, the werewolf sort of progressing to the point where the king realises he's not just a wolf and where his wife can be brought to justice for this, this terrible betrayal. In a similar vein, there's a there's a 14th century English poem, which is a translation of a, a slightly older French one called William of Palerne, where we have a young boy whose um, uncle wants to steal the throne and kills his father and casts the boy out, but he's saved by a friendly werewolf who wants to protect him and um, the two of them become a sort of like brothers and go through all these adventures together and the werewolf helps him to get the girl that he likes and eventually we discover that the werewolf is also a young prince who has been um, prevented from taking the throne and I think these stories are fantastic because although they show a lot of the things that we're used to seeing in modern literature and film which is that the werewolf is scary is a beast is frightening can potentially eat someone but is still a sympathetic character it's still the hero of the poem it's still someone that we want to succeed at the end and I, I really don't think that's changed much um obviously the middle ages isn't fantastic for female werewolves so if i want to say my favorite female werewolf i'd have to jump right through to the 21st century and i think if i'm if I'm being completely honest, it would have to be Calix in Martin Miller's Lonely Werewolf Girl, who's a very um, odd, detached, um, troubled young girl. But Miller's absolutely fantastic at writing female characters, so his books have these amazing casts of, of, of other female werewolves without resorting to any sort of cliché or stereotype. And although they're werewolves, they're actually really believable characters as well. I could go on and list numerous other books. I think um, I'm really into the Kitty Norville series at the moment. I think Carrie Vaughan's a fantastic writer. And um, if Calix from Lonely Werewolf Girl is what I was like as a teenager, Kitty Norville is what I hope I've grown up into. (laughs) Once again, probably over-identifying with the werewolves in books, but I think we all do that with stuff that we're passionate about. I guess that's part of the, well, a big part of the hook for you, Benefit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I was a teenager, I think I was probably much more into vampires, um, of course. Uh, but I didn't see anything 
maybe I wanted to be a vampire. Maybe I thought they were really cool and something to aspire yeah. to. But I didn't see any particular common ground with my own experience. But when you look to werewolves, I, I find it... I find that there's something very human about werewolves. Quickly jump back onto being human there, because last time I interviewed on Richard, I think we probably touched on this. But I, um, some time ago, I found out that the it's Toby Whitehouse that writes Being Human. It was originally going to be written for an agoraphobic, um, a sex addict, and somebody with anger ma- management problems, very human conditions. But then they decided to naturalise it. And when Being Human gets onto its best, it's all about indeed controlling the monstrous. Within. Absolutely. I recently rewatched the the first three series back to back for for some work that I was doing, and it's amazing how many times the word human is used. What's interesting though is it's it's used almost exclusively in relationship to George, and if you if you're really looking out for it, in every single episode there is one of the other characters trying to protect George's humanity, trying to. Nina lies to him and doesn't tell him that he's turned her into a werewolf. Mitchell doesn't want George to face Herrick. Annie lies to George about what Mitchell's been doing. Nina lies to George about what Mitchell's been doing. Um, All because they want to protect something human about George. And so by the end of the third series, you realise that the title does actually refer to George the werewolf. Mitchell the vampire unfortunately, never had a chance. He went off to become a hobbit, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's a terrible fate for a vampire. Um, But yeah, uh, I think that there is a real suggestion, particularly in the third series, that it is impossible for a vampire to retain their humanity. And when Mitchell meets with his, his old friend who had been abstinent for so long and still fell off the wagon, that the hope for the monster does seem to lie in the in the werewolves. George, um, the actor who played George, turned up in an episode of Sherlock as well, The Hound of Baskervilles. That's what that's, that's named the episode, and uh, thought that was quite in danger of being maybe typecast. I don't know, but I thought that was a stunning episode, and the, the sequence when he was in his conservatory at night, and there was the beast, the other side of the glass. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this. Um, it was good to see. Uh, what's his actor's name again? Uh, Russell Tovey. Yeah, it was. I really enjoyed that episode of Sherlock as well. It was a little strange though because it did it did air very close to the end of, uh, very close to the end of series three of Being Human, and in that sequence in the conservatory, there was a little part of me going, I don't know why you're so scared. You know what those noises are. <laughs> you're one of them. Just go out and join them. Um, I don't know whether it's possible to be typecast as playing a werewolf. I'm not. I don't know how many roles you would you would have, but I mean, I think he's a fantastic actor, and I've seen him in other non-lycanthropic roles, and um, he's been great in those too. But yeah, it was good to see him. Good to see him in the Hounds episode. Summarising what we've been talking about, do you, anything you'd like to add? Just that I've really enjoyed coming on to talk about one of my favourite subjects. I think um, after about 3,000 years in literature and nearly 100 years in film, werewolves just haven't got boring yet. You're very welcome. I do remember hearing a talk from you last year talking about um, the female werewolf in media. And uh, I know you you probably felt you rushed it and I think you prepared it last minute. But I I thought it was a really good talk. I really enjoyed that. That sort of stayed with me. Business as Hick Dragones, how would one spell that if one wanted to go and find out a bit more? It's H-I-C 
and then Dragonis is like dragon with an ES on the end. Um, if you Google us or look at our website, www.hick-dragonis.co.uk, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah Kate, for coming back on to something different on Redshift Radio and talking about wheels. It's been really interesting. <laughs> <laughs>